Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Welcome to episode 137 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. My name is Tim Robertson. I'm the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the Alpo. Thanks for downloading and listening. This podcast also kicks off our 75th anniversary. That's right. The Alpo is 75 years old this year, and we're going to be talking to some of the old timers in the organization to find out what it was like way back when. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more at www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the Alpo, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, find us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And also this podcast has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you want to enjoy every single episode of the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now... Really excited about this one, episode 137. Hope you enjoy. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. We are celebrating 75 years of the ALPL. Amazing time. And I'm very lucky to have on the podcast today uh, one of the old timers, <laughs> uh, Tom Dobbins. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Now, uh, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of background about yourself before we got, get into the conversation? Okay. Um, I am a presently retired research chemist, uh, still doing a good bit of astronomy writing in my dotage. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as my history in amateur astronomy, um, uh, I consider myself very fortunate that subjects that I took an interest in as a really young child continued to interest me all my life. It's quite a blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in astronomy was kindled and I can still recall the moment by a how and why wonder book uh, Ah. book called the moon published in 1963 written by a fellow whose other writings I'm utterly unfamiliar with named Felix Sutton, Mm. but it was 
profusely illustrated uh, with a lot of neat artwork, and it contained an illustration showing the birth of the moon by the primordial earth splitting, <laughs> Darwin's old theory, right. not Charles, but his sons. And for some reason, I was just transfixed by that illustration and became fascinated by the moon and planets. Hmm. In 1965, when I was seven years old, I was given my first telescope, and very fortunately, it was a really good one. <laughs> Not one of the 60-millimeter department store refractors that can ruin a budding interest in astronomy. It was a Criterion RV6 Dinoscope. Oh, my goodness. Um, I love that telescope. I, I had that as well. I wish I still had it. I think many people who cut their teeth with those instruments uh, still wish they had mm -hmm. them. And surviving specimens are, uh, are quite coveted, given the ads I see on cloudy nights and eBay. That's true. But they... Um, they tended to have excellent optics, uh, uniformly excellent optics, in fact, and uh, mechanically sound, and uh, really did not disappoint when you looked at the planets through them. Very true. Some Very true. years ago, oh, and probably almost a quarter of a century ago, I had the opportunity to meet John Craywalk, Jr., Hmm. His father, John Craywalk Sr., had founded Criterion, uh, and the tale he told me, parenthetically, is rather interesting. His father was a mechanical engineer by training who was an executive with Colt Firearms, and he was on the golf course one day with Hugh Rice, uh, I, who I believe was with the Hayden Planetarium. And uh, Craywalk himself had no interest in astronomy, but Rice convinced him that the man who could bring to market a decent reflecting telescope would become wealthy. And that <laughs> led to the birth of Criterion. Oh, my goodness. That's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, now... Uh, uh, you, uh, along with your professional background, you're also quite the author. And I have to say that introduction to, to observing and photographing the solar system is I run the training program for the Alpo and that's a required, that's required reading for every single student in the program, because it tells you everything you need to know about observing and photographing the solar system. It's an excellent, excellent book. And you co-authored that with, Two of my favorite people in the world, too, Don Parker and Chick Capon. They were certainly two of my favorite people, and uh, both had a profound influence on me. Um, of course, the book was illustrated with largely with Don Parker's mm -hmm. magnificent uh, silver halide photography. Right. Um, and, of course... Although the book has gone through a second edition, it uh, still retains its section on silver halide photography, which is, I suppose now, kind of like having 
the ultimate guide to buggy whips after <laughs> the invention of the internal combustion engine. Wait, you're, you're talking about a thing called film? Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've heard of that in the past. <laughs> so in that respect, the, the book is unfortunately hopelessly obsolete. Uh, I, I assume most readers of the last generation have never even set foot in a dark room. That's true. Uh, but the rest of the book is somewhat eternal. Uh, mm -hmm. Looking back on it, I know one of the introductory chapters, Cosmic Setting, speculated about the existence of planets around other stars. And of course, now we realize just what a strange place the solar system is <laughs> uh, based on exoplanets. But yes. much of it is held up. It and well, in the words of an old ad by the Irish Tourism Authority, there's a great future in nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's it's a wonderful book. It's got, like I said, it's it's a required reading for anybody in the tra training program. So I'm sure you're still selling a few copies out there, wherever they might be located. But uh, it's it's excellent, excellent book. And you also write tons of articles for Skytosco Magazine as well, right? Yes, I've been a contributing editor there for... Oh, about 18 years and uh, written quite a few articles. Uh, right now, I'm responsible for the bi-monthly uh, column uh, exploring the solar system. Uh, I, in alternate months, have something on the planets and Chuck Wood has something about the moon. Mm -hmm. And I've also started to write uh, stories for the uh, magazine's online news uh, website or blog. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just completed one today about the discovery of anomalous carbon isotopes and sediments on Mars that is kind of tantalizing evidence that Mars may once have harbored life. But I'm an old enough fellow um, that my interest in the planets, which is undiminished, um, I'm, I was born at a particularly fortunate time. In one of the very earliest, perhaps the first issue of Astronomy Magazine, there was an article by Carl Sagan called A Very Special Time. Mm. And in that, he noted that, and this is circa 1973, yep. that every previous generation of human beings who have ever lived grew up wondering and went to their graves wondering about very fundamental questions about the planets. Mm -hmm. And he noted that my generation's children and grandchildren will grow up reading all those answers in textbooks. And that the very best time to be alive is when you grow up wondering, but you end up knowing. Mm. And in that sense, that is typical of what you refer to as Alpo's old hands. That's the era that we grew up in. And that, that's true. We're very fortunate that we did.
yeah, I think we're about the same age and it's I, the, the background sounds very similar with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, was there a person that sparked your interest in astronomy that, that you ran across or a Aside teacher or from, uh, that book, which kindled it, mm-hmm. uh, I would say that my uncle, my mother's twin brother, who was a very successful executive, an engineer by training with a manufacturing company. He was an ATM himself, had a stupendously equipped machine shop in the basement of his Hmm. sprawling estate, Uh, taught me as a pup how to drill and tap a hole and operate a lathe in a vertical mill. Nice. And he is the one who uh, gave me that uh, dinoscope. Oh. And also... For a brief period of time, circa 1980, uh, helped me when I established the Dobbins Instrument Company to make telescopes, um, an exercise that proved that the easiest way to make a small fortune is to start with a bigger one. (laughs) But I would say that he was instrumental in um, sustaining my interests and helping me. And in the local community of amateur astronomers in Cleveland, and my native Cleveland, Ohio, great, great city, much maligned, (laughs) uh, and sadly part of the Rust Belt and in decline. But Cleveland was a city with a great astronomy tradition. It had been the home of Warner and Swayze, who built many of the mounts for and mechanical components for what were then the world's biggest and best telescopes like the Yerkes and Lick refractors. Very true. Um, Case Western Reserve University was in Ohio. The Cleveland Astronomical Society met at the Warner and Swayze Observatory on Taylor Road, which had twin domes one housing the nine and a half inch refractor, Warner and Swayze components, Brashear objective lens that had been the personal telescope of Warner and Swayze, and another dome housed a Schmidt camera. Uh, Believe it or not, even in the 1960s, you could do meaningful deep sky photography from metropolitan Cleveland. That observatory, sadly, um, literally is in a state of physical collapse. It's, uh, but long, long abandoned, but Cleveland had a very thriving community of amateur astronomers. Uh, the fellow that I particularly bonded with Ken Schneller, uh, who was about a decade, my senior but Ken was a prolific contributor to ALPO, uh, particularly during the 1960s. Um, sadly, he's now gone to his reward, but Ken was a very gifted observer. Uh, he was a optician by profession. Uh, he had a very fine eight-inch F9 long-focus Newtonian uh, that he had ground and polished and figured the mirror of. And he was a 
I would say, a particularly prolific observer of the moon and Mars. Hmm. Okay. Now, you, you, met, you mentioned the Dobbins Instrument Company. What type of instruments did you make? We made uh, initially refractors. Oh, my. Uh, largely using objective lenses purchased from Jaegers on okay. Long Island but occasionally having objective lenses made for us by companies like D&G Optical. And the instruments were quite expensive. We also made a number of reflectors, including what for a time was the largest telescope operated by amateur astronomers in the world. Um, a local ATM, uh, Norm Oberly, who ground and polished several really big mirrors made with blanks of General Electric quartz hmm. uh, that GE donated to him. But one of his mirrors was a 31-inch, oh. full, full thickness, one to six thick. Thickness oh ratio, by goodness. the way, a truly massive piece of silicon Ugh. dioxide. Uh, but he ground and polished and figured that to a really good parabola uh, of F7 and had it in a uh, rather primitive altazimuth mount uh, in his yard. And a, That's a massive telescope. It is a massive <laughs> telescope. And a, the founder of a rather successful pump company in Mansfield, Ohio, who was an amateur astronomer, astronomer Warren Rupp. Um, Rupp uh, provided the funds to the Mansfield Area Astronomical Society uh, to buy a huge ash dome and a local engineer who was a member of the Cuyahoga County Astronomy Club named Gary Cater did much of the mechanical design, but in a big skeleton tube on a huge cross axis English style mount with twin concrete piers. Uh, that instrument came together and access to the eyepiece was achieved by means of a self-propelled scissors lift that cost a king's ransom, but could loft two or possibly even three brave souls to the eyepiece. <laughs> and there is a still an annual astronomical get together in, in Ohio, uh, at what is known as the Hidden Hollow Observatory. Sadly, a number of years ago, the original optics to that instrument were destroyed. Oh. Uh, somebody apparently, as I've been told the story, wanting to remove and clean the secondary mirror, which had a minor axis of a whopping seven inches. Kept the tube vertical while removing it, <sighs> uh, rather than horizontal. Oh. And uh, 
that gravity took over that elliptical secondary combined <sighs> with the massive uh, mechanics that held it went plummeting um the full focal length almost of the telescope uh, struck the primary in the center and the rest oh. as they say is history oh heartbreaking oh my i goodness. believe it, that the mirror has been replaced unfortunately with one of considerably shorter focal length mm -hmm. uh, as far as having an instrument well as you can imagine at f7 Mm -hmm. uh, the instrument initially had a rather modest central obstruction and was an absolutely stunning planetary instrument right. and it was in thermal equilibrium. But that was the biggest single project of the Dobbins Instrument Company. Amazing. Amazing. So you know optics, you've been around telescopes your entire life. Do you have a dream telescope that you would love to have? I do. I had it and I sold it uh, <laughs> and have regretted it ever since. Um, shortly before the SL9 impacts on Jupiter in 1994, uh, the year before, I, uh, after having used a six-inch refractor of my own construction for many years, I uh, purchased a 10-inch f9 mirror that i commissioned a utah company that still exists called nova optical systems to make um uh, i remember the dialogue that preceded its purchase uh the you could specify within a reasonable range the focal ratio of the mirror you wanted and the price for a 10-inch F9 mirror was uh, surprisingly modest, something like $400. Oh. And my next letter, this is in the era before email, said, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm a really anal retentive planetary observer, and I really, really want the best possible figure on the mirror. Um, and I believe for an extra 50, certainly less than a hundred dollars. He said, okay, well, I'll... and the mirror turned out to be exquisite. Hmm. Um, and the 10 inch F nine system, uh, had a very modest central obstruction. The instrument was equipped with a fan and an aluminum tube lined with cork and then flocked. Um, oh my. The you get much beyond 10 inches in conventional thickness mirrors, and they take a long while to equilibrate thermally. They've got a lot of thermal inertia. Right. Uh, happily, with the aid of the fan, this would reach thermal equilibrium quite quickly. It had a central obstruction of only 15% hmm. and a curved secondary support. But I would say that that instrument gave me some of the most exquisite views of the planets I've ever enjoyed, including on one memorable night in uh, October of 1997. Hmm. Um, Don Parker of ALPO, Jeff Bish of ALPO, a number of ALPO luminaries were there, along with the late Tom Cave, oh my. a great telescope maker in his own right. Definitely. And uh, 
a real kindred spirit, David Graham, who was Saturn section coordinator mm -hmm. of uh, the British Astronomical Association. And uh, that night featured the only night of, that I've ever encountered in my life of truly perfect seeing from mm -hmm. Ohio. Tom Cave remarked that in his six decades of observing, he'd only seen seeing that good a number of times you could count on the fingers of a hand. Wow. But um, the image of Saturn looked like you were looking at an absolutely static engraving without a tremor, without oh. a ripple, at any magnification. Um, the optimal wow. magnification turned out to be 550. The only reason that you didn't want to go any higher is that the image just grew a bit dim and colors were less saturated. Mm. But the rings did look like a phonograph record. Wow. And it was interesting. There was a rare thermal inversion that night. I My home was on a hillside overlooking the little town of Coshocton, Ohio, which had a pulp paper mill. And you could tell there was a temperature inversion because the entire area had an unpleasant pumpkin-like odor. <laughs> All of the emissions from that paper mill were being retained. But naked eye stars, there was absolutely no scintillation. And I will never get over how fortunate I was to see Saturn like that. It was truly that's, a revelation. That's phenomenal. But to be in the company yeah. of those other people at the time. That's that, that makes it whole, whole different story right there. Yeah. Yes. And a how few did years later, I sold oh. that telescope. Um, it's still here. Well, it's, was sold to a chap in Florida who still mm -hmm. operates it, uh, a fellow named Mike Palermiti, who upon putting it into service said that it surpassed the performance of his 8-inch Zeiss refractor. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and uh, another Alpo luminary, Carlos Hernandez, occasionally right. uses that instrument and sings its praises. With the advent of uh, CCD and webcam imaging, I sold it uh, in order to buy a C14, which uh, probably was a better instrument for imaging, but which was certainly not a better instrument for a visual observer. Right. Now, are you more of a visual guy than, than an imager? Well, I, I became heavily involved, and I would say for a brief period of time, I was one of the pioneers of video imaging back in the days when, and of course, everything was analog, mm -hmm. but uh, for example, you could buy analog, black and white, relatively sensitive security cameras right. um, and record on VHS or better yet, <laughs> HVHS. And that was capable of producing some really stunning results, even as far as image capture uh, on the moon, uh, not so much on the planets. And of course, 
at the time, the stacking of images, uh, individual frames, uh, to reduce noise and to select the sharpest frames uh, was an incredibly tedious, time-consuming manual exercise. Um, in 2001, I co-authored a book called Video Astronomy. I've got that which, on my shelf. Which would be, which was doomed to be rendered obsolete within two years. <laughs> and I would say that in the field of planetary observing, the year 2003 will be remembered the way the year 1066 is in British history. The the Norman invasion, a watershed year. Um, in that year, uh, webcams like the 2U cam right. uh, began to be widely employed in conjunction with free software like Registax uh, that made it possible to almost effortlessly combine a number of images that reduce noise to a negligible level. And I can still remember 2003 was the year of, a, well, the most favorable Mars apparition since mm -hmm. the Pleistocene era, as far as the planet's size and position in the sky. And the very first Mars images I obtained with a webcam uh, were stunningly superior to the best photographs with silver halide film ever obtained by Earl Slifer at Lowell Observatory. Mm. Uh, and it was an absolutely exhilarating experience. Uh, the I consciously remembered at the time the film Patton, where George C. Scott, before confronting Rommel at the Battle of Elagela in North Africa, looked in the mirror and said, all my life I've wanted to lead men in desperate battle, and today I'm going to do it. And I, I remember thinking, all my life I wanted to take images of the planets like this, and by God, yeah. now I can do it. Within six months, the gloss faded from that apple and my thought was gosh now anybody can do this that's right and yeah. uh planetary imaging became almost a competitive sport and there were some real talents in the field don parker made the transition from silver halide film to digital imaging and was among the best. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Damien Peach in Britain is right. the prodigy who to this day is unsurpassed. Right. But suddenly there were a large number of imagers. And when one had the sense that, well, somebody's going to take a better image tonight than I ever will. Uh, <laughs> I, knowing that it was somewhat a competitive sport, I returned to my roots largely as a 
visual observer and have remained so ever since. Yeah, I've got a CCD camera in my toolbox of my astronomy things, and I don't use it. I'd rather stick my eye. I'm one of the rare breeds, you know, that I put my eye to the eyepiece now instead of a camera, and it's the first thing I do, and it's the last thing I do when I'm observing, and it's it gives me more satisfaction because it's my memory that I don't, don't need to share, but it's what I'm seeing, and it shows the skill of an observer, too, to be able to pick out things that are in photographs. Well, I I'm, will say this in in response to your remark, and that is that without exception, the very best uh, imagers of the planets, because processing digital images is an art, Mm -hmm. and it can be done very poorly. Uh, The result of how some people do it looks like an impressionist painting. Uh, but the very best imagers, uh, Damien Peach, mm-hmm. Parker, all were intimately familiar True. with the visual appearance of the planets. True. And that knowledge of how the planets actually appear visually guided their image processing and is what really is ultimately responsible for the quality of their work. Excellent point. Now, how did you get involved with the Oppo? Um, like anyone interested in the planets in the sixties and seventies and eighties, it was the organization to join. I also had the advantage that Walter Haas uh, grew up in Alliance, Ohio, and occasionally returned to Ohio. And I, on a number of occasions, had the chance to meet Walter, and in later years, uh, have him stay under my roof. Um, So... My involvement with Alpo was also accelerated by a burgeoning and later enduring friendship with Walter. Talk, talk, talk to us about Walter Haas. Look, I've, I've talked about him on this podcast before. We had people on the podcast that said he's the reason they joined the Alpo because of his handwritten letters and things like that early on. But t- give us some information about Walter. Walter was um, an excellent correspondent. Mm-hmm. Um, I I still treasure his letters. Uh, he, in person, was a soft-spoken, uh, somewhat introverted man, uh, given to occasional flashes of humor, delivered with a twinkle in his eye. Um, and of course was also whip smart and very cautious in his science. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean that as far as interpreting observational results, um, well, for example, 
uh, I suppose that if after I go to my reward, my name will be remembered, one of the things that it will be associated with is began with an article that appeared in Sky and Telescope in 1999 that I co-authored with uh, my frequent collaborator, Bill Sheehan. And it was called the TLP myth, TLP meaning transient lunar phenomena, mm-hmm. uh, subtitled A Brief for the Prosecution, <laughs> in which I would like to think that we analyzed a few classic TLP sightings and uh, demonstrated quite convincingly that they were illusory. Uh, that work was followed up by the chapter about the subject in Epic Moon, the chapter that Bill and I wrote about the history of lunar exploration through the telescope, and subsequently in other places. And I do think it's resulted in kind of a paradigm shift in the field of lunar studies. I'm reminded of what one Irish social historian wrote about witchcraft, that in in 1650, every educated man in Europe believed in witchcraft. In 1750, no one did. Mm. And I think TLPs, um, as they were conceived, meaning outgassing, residual volcanism, some endogenic phenomenon on the moon Mm -hmm. in a few preferred sites like the central peak of Alphonsus or in the crater Aristarchus, that, uh, that's no longer given much credence. Now, interestingly enough, Walter, well, I think the first major paper that Walter wrote was for the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada shortly after the Second World War called Does Anything Ever Happen on the Moon? And, of course, there were a legion of TLP reports published in the pages of the Alpo Journal, peaking in the 60s, but certainly continuing well into the 70s. And, you know, I can remember my exchanges with Walter about the subject. And although he had really embraced TLPs, Mm -hmm. he was very mentally flexible And uh, I remember him uh, uttering the words, well, there's a difference between an open mind and an empty head. Um, And I think Walter's feelings on the subject changed over the years. Um, But uh, Walter did have a towering intellect. Um, Actually, he told me a story that's worth repeating. that I think many people are unfamiliar with. Okay. Uh, Walter was a mathematician by training. True. And for a short period of time, uh, right after the Second World War, he was at White Sands, New Mexico, along with Werner von Braun and the team of Hitler's former rocket scientists who had been brought to the United States as part of Operation Paperclip. And Walter 
was there with many of these folks. And initially, the principal exercise was to uh, test captured V-2 weapons left over at the end of hostilities. And two of the incidents that Walter related to me uh, are worthy of retelling. Um, a V-2 rocket, of course, was a 46-foot-tall <laughs> cylinder uh, filled with uh, alcohol and liquid oxygen and uh, designed to carry a warhead of one ton of explosives. Well, when one of these was tested, uh, Walter said it, of course, went vertically upward, but suffered uh, engine failure. And he said it had just disappeared from naked eye sight when we realized that the motor had cut out. And you knew that there was something the size of a locomotive that was going to be plummeting out of the sky and that the result would make a hole in the ground tens of feet in depth as well as diameter. And there we stood, <laughs> absolutely paralyzed, uh. looking at one another, wondering, if we run over there, <laughs> will we be killed, or will we be killed by staying here? Fortunately, right. it fell in a place where nobody got a scratch, but he said... That was a very strange and very memorable feeling. I bet. The other story that he told was of a V2 with a bad gyroscope. And uh, shortly after liftoff, it went horizontally south, landed within the city limits of Juarez, Mexico. Oh. Uh, fortunately, the test was on the Cinco de Mayo, the Mexican national holiday. And this weapon fell within the confines of an old city cemetery, didn't injure a soul. And at the time, many people thought that it was part of the festivities. Yeah. Uh, the United States government, the military, was very interested in recovering this weapon and offered a reward for its remnants. And Walter said, uh, Mexican peasants are surprisingly intelligent because knowing that they would be paid for purported parts of this rocket, he said, our government paid for masses of metal exceeding the mass of the rocket uh -huh. by a factor of three. <laughs> so those are some Walter Haas reminiscences. That is awesome. Thank you very much for sharing those. That's awesome. Now, in... In the world of astronomy and in the ALPO, there was a group, the Black Hole Gang. And you were lucky enough to be a part of that. And I think it was Don, it was Chick, it was you, Jeff Bish. Don Parker, Chick Capon, Jeff Bish, uh, Carlos Hernandez. Yes. Uh, Bish, Hernandez, and I uh, still survive. Mm-hmm. Um, Chick Capon, by the while, if I may digress, um, Go for it. Chick was an amazing man, hmm. uh, a consummate scientist, and in many ways, 
chick taught Don photography. Uh, I first met Chick in person after Chick had retired from Lowell Observatory and was living at, I believe, ancestral property of his wife, Ginny's, in Cuba, Missouri. Mm. Um, in order to write, observing and photographing the solar system, Parker and I descended on Cuba, Missouri. <laughs> in july of 1985 and uh every day there uh the local temperature was in the triple digits and the humidity was saturated it was absolutely oppressive uh chick who was a small spry man mm -hmm. uh typical of fighter pilots chick flew P-51s and was a flight instructor during World War II. Uh, but Chick was light as a feather and didn't run the air conditioning in the house. Parker and I were afraid we were going to come down with malaria. We were just <laughs> torpid because it was so hot. And uh, Chick never had so much as a bead of sweat on his forehead. I believe it was on the third day that Parker complained about the heat thinking that Chick must not have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And Chick then asked, oh, would you like me to turn on the air conditioning? <laughs> to which Parker replied, do you have some sort of thyroid condition? Of course we do. <laughs> but uh, Chick spent most of his time uh, lightly clad in an Africa Corps tunic and field cap. <laughs> and... Uh, he uh, he was just a tremendous fellow and always had great anecdotes to tell. You know, it's interesting that somebody my age, well, I knew Chick Capon, who knew many of the old hands at Lowell Observatory, mm -hmm. and of course, Walter Haas spent the summer of 1938 in Jamaica, which is where he met his wife, she had been the personal secretary of the Harvard astronomer William Henry Pickering, who, somewhat disgraced, had retired from Harvard and set up a private observatory uh, in Jamaica. And Walter spent the summer with this rather eccentric old astronomer with eccentric old ideas. Uh, and of course, Pickering himself had been at Lowell Observatory for a time at its founding. But it's amazing to me that I knew people who knew the people who were Fundamental characters, for example, in the original controversy surrounding Martian canals and whether they were mm -hmm. part of an irrigation network. Mm -hmm. um, back to the other members of the Black Hole Gang. Um, Jeff Bish, uh, musician, mm -hmm. has a Tennessee draw. Uh, a towering intellect and a 
true gift for mathematics. Uh, when Don met him in Miami, uh, Jeff was working for United Airlines, designing and maintaining flight simulators. Uh, but uh, Jeff, you know, built some marvelous optimized planetary telescopes, was a really gifted visual observer, and still provides the uh, ephemeris for each Mars apparition. Mm. Uh, one of our great adventures, which was capturing on videotape Martian flares back in 2001, uh, the fact that we were able to predict that they might occur uh, was largely based on software conceived by Jeff that let you find out the relative positions of the Earth, the Sun, and Mars for specular reflections. Mm. Um, and by the way, uh, in December of this year, that same Earth, Sun, Mars geometry will prevail, and there may be another opportunity to see Martian flares in oh. Edom Promontorium again. Um, and there is some lingering mystery to this day. We There's certainly every reason to believe that these are specular reflections. Initially, we thought... Well, they're probably from hexagonal plate ice crystals in the Martian, at, hovering in the Martian atmosphere, slowly descending to produce a phenomenon called the subsun. When you look at it from an airplane here on Earth above a deck of cirrostratus clouds, uh, what we found in 2001 was that these reflectors have to be on the surface uh, because they're substantially inclined to the horizontal. And what their nature is, possibly uh, minerals, possibly uh, exposed patches of ice or frost on the faces of dunes, remains to be seen. But uh, this will be a chance to attack that problem again. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. I've tried to get Jeff on the podcast. I think I reach out to him every six months and he'll say yes. Then he'll say no. and say, no, I just don't have the time right now, but he's, he's a character and I would love. Yeah. He's becoming a bit reclusive, uh, yeah, but, yeah. um, but his knowledge and, and certainly one of Alpo's, uh, great assets. Yep. I agree. I agree. Interesting. And, of course, the late Tippy Dioria uh, was a member of the Black Hole Gang. Tippy uh, w was really responsible for the very existence of the Winter Star Party in the Florida Keys. It's funny, uh, South Florida, and in particular the Keys, are now renowned for just how good their astronomical scene is. Uh, I mean, you've got particularly in the Keys, very, very little diurnal temperature variation. It can be, and, and of course, the surrounding water has a 
inhibiting influence on just how hot it gets during the day. So it'll be in the low 90s, uh, but by dawn, temperatures will have plummeted to the low 80s. Uh, (laughs) Plus, you've got a, a laminar airflow. But I know that when Don Parker moved to Miami, uh, he thought that he was doomed as far as doing astronomy uh, because of an incredibly light polluted and presumably also turbulent uh, observing site. And he was absolutely delighted to find that seeing in South Florida could be so good. Um, but Tippy took advantage of that by, by founding the Winter Star Party. And Tippy was a former uh, submariner uh, and uh, always a Navy man and uh, always very, very good company. Mm. Okay. How about Don Parker? Don was unique. (laughs) And Don was the closest friend I ever had. And for a period of, oh, almost two decades, there was never a day that went by that we did not talk on the telephone. Um, Don, uh, you know, your really good friendships also Mm -hmm. tend to transform who you are. Um, It's hard for me to talk about, Don. Uh, In a day that goes by that I don't think about him and miss him. I understand. But um, he was bigger than life. His enduring influence on me was that he taught me that it's possible to be a very serious person without taking yourself too seriously. And Don was, had the richest sense of humor, Mm -hmm. the best wit of anyone I've ever met. He could have been a stand-up comic. It was funny. (laughs) I don't know if it's appropriate for this podcast, but I assume you can edit it on one occasion from a podium with a, fortunately with a very friendly audience, Don uttered the following words, which brought down the house. And they were, amateurs have contributed more to astronomy than to any science with the exception of gynecology. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, I also recall when um, John Westfall, inherited the editorship, the editorship of the Elpo journal. Mm -hmm. And for a time it began to be published irregularly and, uh, chronically late, uh, a situation that Ken Pachetli, uh, rescued. Mm -hmm. But, uh, at the annual Elpo meeting done in remarks to the rest of the board from a podium said, now that we've explained to John that quarterly doesn't mean every four years, I think everything <laughs> will be fine. <laughs> oh, God. But yep. Parker had a keen wit for mm-hmm. 
every situation that was spontaneous and uh, you know he was a pioneer in dive physiology uh he was an avid diver uh he raced yachts and uh, he was very good at everything he did mm-hmm. yeah i only met him a handful of times but he you meet him and it was just like you were old friends Yes, and he, he was very warm and inviting, and I just remember his humor. You know, it was just—it was always something funny that he had to say, and it's just like. But his skills as a astrophotographer, I mean, they were unmatched at the time too. They—they uh, they truly were, and uh, Don, and this also goes for Jeff Bish as well. But Don was not only uh, somebody who took incredible photographs of the planets, but when it came to both Mars and Jupiter in particular, um, Don was also good at doing really hard science in collaboration with leading professional astronomers like Mm -hmm. Leonard Martin at Lowell Observatory, uh, with issues of Martian clouds and Martian climate and Martian polar cap regression, Don was not only good at amassing data, but he was also really good at giving it meaning. Hmm. And that is a rare combination. Very true. Wow. Yeah, he's he's definitely missed, and uh, you are a lucky man to spend that much time with him as well. I am indeed. Yeah. So if there's one thing that uh, the worst part of growing old is watching your friends die. Mm, and I, uh, I, I uh, that certainly goes for, for Don and Chick. That's, I, I hear you on that. Now, the name, the Black Hole Gang, where did that, if you can say in, 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 on the air, where did it come from? I, I have to confess, I don't know myself. Oh, okay. It sounds like something Don would come up with. That's all. I'm just. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I really don't know its origin. Okay. All right. Interesting. So if I had to ascribe it to anybody, it would probably be Tippy. Oh, fact. really? Really. Why is that? Uh, Tippy had a sense of humor, every bit as well developed as Don's. And, uh, it perhaps is buried somewhere deep in my subconscious mm-hmm. and the situation could be clarified with bright lights and a cattle prod, but I, I have some vague memories that Tippy came up with that name. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll believe that because you're the closest one to it. Now, all the years you've seen the ALPL change, you mentioned the, the, uh, the journal, you know, it's publishing irregularities to where it is now, but what have you seen over the years in the Alpo? How has it changed for you? Um, Well, of course, Walter was really the glue Mm -hmm. that held everything together. And as Peggy's health declined and Walter aged, um, but um, there was some 
tumult until things were finally rectified by Westfall and others. Uh, John and Julius Benton and um, Ken ultimately got the ship righted. Um, and in the evolution of Alpo, I, I, you know, the advent of the web and instant communication and probably in some respects injured the local astronomy club as an institution. But I think it's really helped ALPO uh, as far as observers around the world, particularly with objects like Jupiter and Mars, who are able to instantly communicate and who monitor the planet thoroughly, uh, the, the, both planets, uh, as well as Saturn for that matter. But we, uh, we fortunately, in, in people like Richard Schmuda, um, are in very capable hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recently was elected on the board to take uh, Mike Reynolds' place, which are massive shoes to fill. And very literally and figuratively, no doubt. Yes, yes. Very intimidating. And uh, it's a good group that's running the ship right now. It really is. And and Carl Hergenrother has just taken over the executive directorship of the organization. And he's got lots of things he wants to do. And I'm very happy with where the organization is right now. As you should be. Yeah. 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 So anything else about the Alpo you want to, you want to share before we move on? Um, it has been a source for me of a considerable number of enduring friendships mm. and uh, it made it possible for me to meet and associate with um, some of the finest people that I've encountered in my life, as well as provide uh, an outlet and a, uh, and a forum that uh, has been an important part of my life. Very good. I like that. So, Observing now, what type of observing equipment do you have? I have a six-inch refractor, a seven-inch Moxutov Cassegrain that is simply because of its portability, mm -hmm. the most frequently used instrument. I hear you. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've gone the Maxutov trail too just because of I can't move around like I used to and carry the big scopes around anymore. And the Max Udoff fits that role very perfectly. And quite frankly, uh, it's performance mm -hmm. compared to the six inch refractor does not disappoint. Good. There is also a, uh, 12 inch Newtonian on a, uh, suitably massive German equatorial mount, which, uh, perhaps to my wife's chagrin, is now largely relegated to the status of furniture. <laughs> it's that living room piece in the corner, right? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, mine are in the kitchen, <laughs> which makes my wife very happy as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Interesting. So what, what, are, what are your interests now in astronomy? Are you still just planetary observing or what other, other types of things are you doing? I have been almost exclusively uh, a planetary and to some extent a lunar observer all, all my life. And I can't say that I do any systematic visual observing. Um, observing for me has become largely an informal and recreational, uh, activity. Um, but I, I suppose the, just the aesthetic experience of, uh, seeing Jupiter, Saturn, or Mars, uh, is still something that is undiminished since my boyhood. Hmm. Very true. That's, I like that. I like that a lot. So what other interests do you have outside of astronomy? Uh, I have always been uh, interested in history. Uh, in fact, my interest in history has in some ways spilled over and colored my interest in astronomy since I try to weave in historical context whenever I write about astronomical subjects. And uh, my historical interests are primarily um, the Second World War and the Cold War. Uh, hmm. I probably know more about the Second World War than I know about astronomy or the chemistry that I did for a living. Really? And I've also always been very interested in military aviation, but though with emphasis again on the second world war, but, um, and, um, <clears throat> another area of history that fascinates me a great deal and the books collected about it occupied two and a half shelves of the library, uh, is the ongoing mystery of, uh, John Kennedy's assassination in 1963. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you've done more re research on it than I have, so I'd, I'll leave that in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> is there any other information you'd like to share with people before we end this? No, no, it's been a pleasure. It has, Tom. It, it's really good talking to you. I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast today. Um, your experience, your knowledge, your relationships with a lot of these people uh, is invaluable. And it's, I really appreciate the message getting out and talking about them. Oh, it's been my pleasure and my honor. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that'll do it for this exciting episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I really want to thank Tom Dobbins for coming on and giving us a little bit of background about the ALPO and his life and some of the amazing members that we've had in this organization as we celebrate 75 years of the ALPO. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. 
You can't subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, hey, head over there and give us a rating, a five-star rating. I really appreciate it. It brings more people to the podcast. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Echo, Spotify, and also our new YouTube channel. All of the podcasts are uploaded on YouTube, so you can go over there and listen to them as well support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where you'll receive one year's membership to the Alpo and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I really want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon as well as the link for the Alpo is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening. <laughs>